Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Daniel Gross. Daniel is founder and CEO of Pioneer, a reimagined version of the Startup Accelerator. Daniel, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you very much for having me. I am delighted to be here and be an accompaniment of you and all your data nerds. All right. Now, you we've had a few conversations before on spotting talent, um, and I, I kind of consider you an expert on spotting talent. So, okay, so let's say you and I were starting a hedge fund together, and we get to invest in um, like the future equity of or the future income of a 16-year-old. Um, but, you know, we're competing against all these other hedge funds. What types of kids do you think are like the underpriced assets? So to the extent that like, you know, you were to rethink the question of like, wow, the venture market is so overcrowded. Boy, it'd be neat if we could just find these excellent founders and maybe invest in their businesses before anyone else got to them. I think I am probably at 1%, maybe half a percent of the appropriate knowledge I should have uh, in order <laughs> to answer that question. But, you know... Um, uh, everyone seems to be very overconfident these days. So, you know, I'll, t- I'll take a cue from the crowd. Um, so to the extent that I could opine about this, I um, think the big thing to be looking at for talent, by the way, this question is interesting to contrive in a kind of investment, you know, uh, hedge fund standpoint. But in reality, I think it applies to anyone who's hiring, um, anyone who's really in any position to figure out if they want to surround themselves by other people. Um, and so I, I actually think like it's worth paying, it's worth thinking about this kind of regardless of where you are in the world. Um, what to look for in high quality talent, especially early on. Um, and I think the simplest answer to this question, and I'm coming at you as a person who's spent and has built and run uh, a, a huge amount of psychometrics, machine learning, like I've, I've read all the books, and again, I'm still an idiot, but the simplest thing to, I think, be on the lookout for is actually really hard to measure uh, quantitatively or, uh, or even qualitatively, and that is energy. Um, literally, like the person's energy. And I think the best way to think about this is the Paul Graham, um, founder of Y Combinator aphorism of, you know, th- you want there to be a sense in your heart of formidability and almost fear from the person you're engaging with. And, you know, for me, fear is like a, you're not quite the right emotion. You know, I think just raw energy is really important. And it's one of those things, you know, you often will tell this to people and they say, well, you know, what does that even mean? I think everyone knows what it means. And I think everyone, when they see it, when they have a good experience, they themselves leave energized. And the issue is these people are maybe one in 10, 100, depending on where you're looking, a million. And so you spend most of your time not being engaged with energetic people. Uh, and so you tend to forget that it even exists, but of course it does. So energy, I would say by far is the one thing I look for. And I just sit there, you know, in the Zoom call. You have to like spend an hour with a person to know that they're energetic or there's some other data point to know if someone has high energy. You know, we could talk about all sorts of funny little biomarkers that would be predictive of it. Like, you know, I was always interested in, the, in this class of people that would always be wearing shorts, even when it was cold outside. But like they're just <laughs> running hot. You know, you get the sense that the, there's like a, like a kettle and the steam is kind of bubbling out. Um, but in reality, I think if you spend five, 10 minutes with someone, you, you really know. 
and I, I, I believe they've done these interesting studies about professor charisma, where they say take an hour lecture from a professor talking about something, and then they have students grade the overall kind of charisma and that person's ability to communicate. And then they say, okay, an hour, that's really long. So let's slice that into 30. 30, and it turns out you keep like 80% of the accuracy. And then they slice that again to 15 minutes and you keep like 70% of the accuracy. And then they slice that all the way down to, I think it's something like two minutes and you still have like better than chance accuracy. And so the mind is doing a lot. You know, I think when you just interact with someone in a very, very powerful way. Um, and one way I conceptualize it is I think for every kind of unit of interaction you have with a person, like literally every second that goes by, especially if it's in the real world, um, you are constant, at least I think, again, I, I'm not really sure, but I would hypothesize that you are constantly ingesting information. The brain is decoding it um, and searching for similar in patterns that it's seen in the past and then applying those predictions to that person. Now, this could cause you to overlook people just because you, you may have not met, I don't know, um, a lot of like uh, really successful people from Indonesia. And so you may meet someone that kind of has the aesthetic of Indonesia. I don't know randomly why I'm picking on them, but um, it has and it's the aesthetic of Indonesia and, and you may misrate them. Um, but broadly, I think the system from an evolutionary standpoint exists in our mind because I think it generally kind of works. And so I think you can kind of tell if you just think about energy, which by the way, I think is true across all genders, all cultures, all everything. Everyone has like energetic types, non-energetic types. Um, so I think that is a very important thing to look for. And one thing, you know, when I first got into this stuff, um, we built and rolled out and, and did a lot of work around IQ. Um, and I know the um, ins and outs of like IQ psychometric testing, I think at least a few avenues of it, the, the type that the military likes to use called Ravens. Um, progressive matrices, which is, you know, a, a visual test. And so you're not, you, you, it matters less if you speak English well, or, you know, like fancy words. Um, and um, I used to be, I used to think IQ really matters. And look, it's to some extent it does. Um, like you do have to have the ability to reason through complex problem spaces. Um, and you do have the ability to have working memory, um, but that tapers out pretty quickly. And to some extent, you'd rather have someone. Or there's like a, they're basically saying there's some sort of asymptote where it matters to a certain amount, and then it, then it doesn't matter much anymore. Yeah, um, and to, I think Warren Buffett has that quote of you know if your IQ is like I forget what it is, it's like above you know 130, give the extra points away um, and trade them for emotional stability or something like that. Um, and you know that's very true in his business where I mean he's Warren Buffett is paid to be relaxed. That, that, that is, you know, ultimately what you're paid for there. Um, the founder is, is slightly different, but energy matters much more. You know, final thought on this, um, if, if, if I didn't really nail the point already, in the story of a founding company, the main reason why energy matters is you need, at the end of the day, whatever the person's hypothesis early on in the business, it's generally wrong. And so what you're trying to evaluate is two things. One, um, will the market give you enough tailwind and kind of excitement so that you continue bouncing around and trying other things? And two, how many things are you going to try and how quickly are you going to try them? And so, you know, investing in someone who's starting a company and who's energetic is like just having more shots on goal. Um, so you kind of need that because I, I like, I do think pre-product market fit, it's really dark. It's, you know, it's like punching a pillow. There's like, there's, you get no feedback from the thing. Um, and so, you, you know, you need someone who's 
was really going to give it their all. Is there um, analogy to energy to enthusiasm? Is are they some sort? Are they somehow related to one another? I like to ask myself in the interview um, if I am interacting. I'm, I'm kind of not talking about the world of psychometrics and quantitative analysis now because I think that's less applicable and interesting to the everyday person because you, you kind of can't do, do that yourself. Um, so, like qualitatively, when you meet with someone, you know, another question I think that's really important to ask is if you would work for them. And there, I think you're automatically thinking about, are they energetic? Are they charismatic? Are they excited? Uh, you know, Because um, uh, I think you find that you generally want to work for these people. A related quality that I think about a lot, especially now in the kind of hot button political environment that we live in, is whether that person is funny. I think funny people are really underrated. And why, why do you think so? Just as a quality to look for, it doesn't sound very erudite to say I'm looking for funny people. But I think at the end of the day, charismatic leaders are pretty funny um, and they have the ability and humor is a really important emotion, I think, for two reasons. One is if you can evoke it a lot and you can be funny, you can kind of create a sense of bonding. There's a general, generally speaking, in a remote world in particular, there's like a shortage of emotion, we feel. The oxytocin exchange between us now, as we stare at each other here at our computer monitors, is maybe one one hundredth of what it would have been if we were in the real world. And so, like, when you think about it, why do movies succeed? Movies substitute the real world interaction with synthetic emotion. So horror, humor, action, drama. So you want leaders that can do the same over Zoom. That's why Peloton instructors have all the jokes that they're saying. It's the same exact effect. And so anyway, humorous leaders, I think, matter in particular in an era of Zoom. But there's a second reason why I think humor is important, which is if you were to imagine a kind of Maslow hierarchy of needs, I at least find with myself, I don't, I'm not able to think about a joke if I feel like like basic stuff isn't right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if I'm, if you're not sleeping well, or I well, don't you know have what. this, um, you know, the gallows humor, right? So, uh, you know, typically people in the middle of the trenches in World War One or something like that are coming up with some pretty good jokes and stuff. So maybe it does substitute even when you're when you're low down on the, the hot Maslow hierarchy. It's, it's, it's a great point. I think it's because those people actually had their base needs met because they were with other people they really liked, and so you have that kind of World War One. We're in the trenches, joking about it. It'll all go to hell. Um, that there is a sense of relaxation from that. I think if you're truly panic-stricken, if you're walking down the street and a car almost crashes into you, you're, that's not going to be a great time to think of a joke. Anyway, I think humor is, is really fun to look for. The final case for humor is just like selfishly, it's fun to be around funny people. You do have to be careful, though. There is a slice of, um, you, you kind of have a court jester type Um these are people where I think they're so insecure, they'll do anything to get a laugh or get a joke. And you usually see it in kind of lower quality humor. You see this in stand-up comedians too. Where, you know, if you go to like a stand-up comedy club somewhere and it's just some random guy trying to get a laugh, they usually go for very vulgar jokes because that's a very cheap laugh. Yeah. Cursing's cheap. But of course, like Jerry Seinfeld, I mean, world renowned for this fact, he never curses and he gets a laugh. And so that's another axis I like to think of. Um, or making fun of other people is maybe an easier way to get a laugh, but 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 can probably does not lead to camaraderie. Does not lead to camaraderie. I, you know, my out, I think that a lot of people do who are much more successful than me is self-deprecation, which is always good. I think there's an element of not taking yourself too seriously that, there that's good. So 
anyway, I think that's an interesting one to, to think about. And the one um, adjacent thing that's just been on my mind maybe the past two days, I've been thinking a lot about, this is a bit more relevant for people hiring. So say you're looking to hire and you're trying to figure out if something's good. What's another thing to base yourself in is I think people get, get caught in these dynamics where they hire people, where the opportunity is ultimately not truly a leg up for the person that you're hiring. And there's no sense of indebtedness, meaning a lot of people like, hire for lateral moves. And I don't think that works. And so what I'm asking myself is, is this person like genuinely going to become better by me investing in them, by me hiring them? And I, I really think the best dynamics are that where the other person is truly grateful for the opportunity. And when, you know, when I think of the people I really respect in life, it's because they gave me some type of opportunity that I kind of almost didn't deserve. So one of the things I think people struggle with is, is kind of spotting ambition um, it seems with, you know, even, even with super successful, even with super successful founders, you see the ones that just kind of end up spending most of their time at their winery. And then you see the ones that are actually like go to bat again and again and again, and try to change the world and stuff like that. Like there's some sort of uh, level that sometimes where people reach and then their, 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 no, their, their ambition no longer kicks in anymore. How do you know what that level is about somebody a priori when, when you meet this like amazing 22 year old, how do you know how ambitious that person truly is? My view is that ambition, you know, to the extent that some of these things are nature and some of them are nurture ambition is a bit more of a nurture thing. And what I like to think about is who is that person performing for? Who are they really, you know, trying to impress? Who's in their friend circle and who's just beyond the friend circle that they wish they knew better and that respected them? Because what I think happens with the people that peace out to Hawaii fairly quickly, which is a great thing for the economy of Hawaii, but, you know, not a great thing if you were hoping their business would go to the next level, is they've clearly surrounded themselves in a culture where that's acceptable. And the people that don't, and there's one exception to this, we'll touch on it in a second, but Broadly, the people that don't are in a culture where that is unacceptable because there's something else that you want, either a next strata of wealth or you want the company to just have a next strata of impact that it has not had. And what I have found fascinating is even at the tail end of the map of capitalism, you still have like Bezos at the end of the day trying to be Elon. And you still have people who run hundred billion dollar companies that are looking at Oracle and uh, Microsoft as real titans. And so that it's, it's interesting that that hierarchical tree doesn't end. And so when the person is, sometimes I meet people, I'll give me an example. Sometimes I meet people, um, this was really popular, I would say in 2018, 19, it's re reduced a little bit, it might be because my audience changing, but I, I would meet people and I realized that they're ultimately performing for Twitter. And so there's like a bunch of people on Twitter, they really want to like their tweets. And because like um, capitalists are like generally not that much on Twitter, um, I don't venture capitalists are, but like I, I'm not really considering them in the bucket here. They just don't end up like creating valuable things. They end up creating tweets that get liked by people in academia or, or like the intellectual sphere that is super exciting to them. So I think a good question to just sit and, you know, posit to yourself in the interview is who are you performing for? Um, you can try to ask a candidate this type of question. I think like all, I would classify all, all whimsical, tricky questions in this bucket where you have to be careful about how you ask it. And you probably need to repeat it a few times just because when you ask a candidate a question, that's an uncashed thing that they're actually going to have to think about. You have to give them space to do that. 
which is really hard to do in an interview. Could you ask it ahead of time and, and have them come to the interview with the answer or something? Or That would be thoughtful. You end up in a dynamic, though, where like there's a perfect amount of time and too much, too much time. You actually end up getting a super pampered answer where, you know, they've, they're like giving you the answer you want to hear as opposed to the good one. There are many strategies to overcome this. Like there's a whole different topic of how to run an interview that I'm still learning about, which is totally different from questions to ask. And I do think there's a, like you could take all these excellent things to be on the lookout for and all these excellent questions and totally screw them up by running the interview in an obtuse way. Is there a way we could, on average, make people more energetic or something? If, if energy is the core thing, is there some way to make our population more energetic? Look, there's the um, it's funny for every type of talent question, I find there's like uh, there's different layers, like a networking stack that you can think reason about. Uh, and there's the kind of biological endocrine layer which is always fun to pontificate about. I don't know how true it is. Like, you know, this idea that, that we really advanced from the dark ages to the kind of um, industrial revolution as a byproduct from moving to alehouses to tea and coffee houses. Um, and I do think there's some truth in that. People used to meet, you know, and we didn't have purified water. So we were literally drinking wine for water in the dark ages. And if you kind of replace all Starbucks with pubs and people meet there at noon, you're not going to have a very productive society at 3 p.m. Instead, people are literally needing to take stimulants. Um, so you like the fact that caffeine does not have, as far as we can tell, uh, or I know, no like real long-term negative side effects is a real miracle for human productivity. I'm not here to talk about the endocrine layer. I'm not smart enough. Um, I do think if more abstractly, you know, so yeah, say you run a little island somewhere um, and you, and you do want to raise like the energy and ambition levels of a country, what do you do? Um, I think at the end of the day, as far as I can tell from humans, look, I'm, I'm just someone from Jerusalem that accidentally bumbled into Silicon Valley. And now I'm on a podcast with you purportedly talking about as if I know anything. And <laughs> that is a great study, if anything, that I think humans have like a huge dynamic range that everyone is kind of born with. And the question is, how much of it are you going to activate? And that is, I think, a byproduct of the environment that you're surrounded by. So probably, you know, if, if you were kind of czar of this little island somewhere, I think just bringing people by that are impressive and successful to be seen by your citizens is a very big deal. You know, I remember anecdotally for me, I was 18 years old when I moved to Silicon Valley and this may sound kind of weird, but you know, seeing Mark Zuckerberg came by to give a lecture or something. And back then Facebook was roughly what Stripe is now. It was like the you know, company everyone wanted to be. And being able to just see him and understand that it was a real person that I could kind of be too is like, you can't experience that digitally. That's a real thing. And there's like a lot of the brain is just reorganizing itself once you have that observation. So I think if, if you were running that little island, that's probably like one important thing you could do. If optimism is correlated with energy, there's certainly societies that are more optimistic. You know, some say some people say like America's more optimistic than Europe or something. Um, and 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 there may be some way to I, I don't know how you create a more optimistic society. So I believe, you know, since the say, I think it's like 1965 or it might be all time. The number I think it is all time, if I'm correct, the number of do you want to hazard a guesses to the number of Chinese Nobel laureates? that are from China. So not that of Chinese descent, but are from China. Based on what you're saying, I would assume it's low. I think it might be six, maybe seven. And this is a nation of a billion people, um, billion plus. And so I think it's an interesting question. You know, why aren't there more? They're clearly very smart because Chinese people 
if you look at them as their ethnicity, they have quite a few Nobel prizes, but you know, it's mostly people from California. And I, you know, I've asked this around and one answer I got that I thought was interesting is there's this idea that you just don't have freedom to think almost even optimistically um, due to kind of an over-injection of competitiveness. Um, and as a result, there's a lack of optimism in China uh, that I think leads to a lot of local maximization at the cost of global maximization. Um, and, you know, I think it is also true that if you look at a lot of the great geniuses here in the United States, you know, uh, Jim Keller, who designed the x86 chip, um, the guy, uh, what is Kerry Mullis, who made PCR or invented PCR, um, Steve Jobs, uh, you know, across the board, these people, uh, Richard Feynman, oh, were pretty crazy. Uh, we're very optimistic and pretty crazy. And you always get the sense that, you know, had the, I always was thinking if Feynman was in China, he would have been shot. You know, this guy's playing the bongos and, you know, sleeping with women in college, no way. Um, and so there's like a, a level of oh, kind of um, uh, outlandishness that you get here in the US that leads to like pretty optimistic thinking, which I, I think comes from not being overly competitive, oddly, and more interested in actually societal good. And I think that's a, it's a real big difference from many other countries in the world. Israel, where I grew up, I can say it's just like, I don't actually know anything about China, but I know a little bit about Israel. And where I grew up, I think as a byproduct of your neighbors trying to constantly kill you and this constant war, you end up with a society that's very, um, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but it's realistic. And it's actually not optimistic. But Israel has a very high percentage of Nobel laureates. And, and it has a ton of startups. So what's going on there? It, Israel has no market risk companies. It has only execution risk companies. And that's a byproduct of that. Um, and I think a lot of the Nobel Prizes you'll see from Israel are kind of like, if you can make this happen, huge if true. No one is going to dream up Snap or Facebook in Israel, but they will definitely get a semiconductor chip right. Um, and I think that's because there's no blue sky kind of optimism. And I think that all feeds from just like a, might be a deeper Jewish thing, I don't know, but it feeds from a deeper sense of kind of a harsh society and you know worried about your own existential living. So you know, I do think going back to your theoretical question, you're designing this island, the right degree of oppression is important. You don't want, you know, too little oppression. Otherwise, you end up, I think, like New Zealand. Um, you don't want too much oppression. Um, but some some is good. What do you think is like the biggest motivator for founders? Is it like peer respect? Is it uh, money? Is it, you know, what, what do you think really motivates people? I would say that Silicon Valley was almost entirely not commercial in, in, this, in what early founders wanted. Uh, I think it, it was... It was not purely academic either. Those people are in academia. Uh, it was a kind of sense of, you know, it's a kind of a Walt Disney sense of like, I want to build a really cool place and I want people to think it's awesome. It does seem it's changed in the last 10 years. It seems like the way higher percentage of conversations are around money today than it was 10 years ago. Do you agree with that statement or? Yeah, and I think it's a byproduct of two things. One, crypto, uh, which provides instant liquidity. And as a result, I think you just have a much more of a money thing going on. But two is, I think as all systems grow in popularity, you have this eternal September effect where you know it attracts most normal people. And I think most normal people are actually just you know interested in you know making money. And it's a good thing, like you know, um, incentives um, 
in, as far as I can tell from my, you know, my reading of, you know, Hayek and, you know, um, Milton Friedman, like that's a great thing for a productive society, but it does pull forward uh, your, how long-term you are. Um, and so you do end up meeting a lot of founders today. You know, it's a great question in abstract to ask, like from first principles, reason about why is SaaS more popular than starting a new SpaceX or starting a new SpaceX, say 10 years ago? Or why is SaaS more popular than starting a new bio, bi biology company? And I think the answer to that is most founders um, need to see a very clear map to the company working and getting revenue and getting like rich. Every few months, you're, you're getting inputs to know if you're on the right track. Whereas if you're starting a biotech company, you know, that that might be every few years to actually get inputs to, to know if you're on track. Totally. And, and you're kind of thinking and you can see a lot of the SaaS success around you and just like, you know, new categories you just can't see. Um, and so, you know, I think that's why you end up getting more and more as Silicon Valley as software, it's more and more of the world and like startups become ultimately like just businesses, um, like technology is like as a sector doesn't really, I think, exist anymore. Um, I think it's just business. Like all businesses are technology businesses. Um, I think you're going to get more and more kind of people that just want to chase some type of short term, obvious thing that will work. And so that's why you see SaaS proliferate everywhere. Um, and that's why you don't see as much kind of like cloud seeding. California is burning on fire. Yep. Like the country I grew up in seeds clouds. You could just see like, it's not that simple and it's not really clear that it works. But broadly speaking, it's like the most underinvested obvious bet. Just command clouds to appear when it rains. But you don't see founders working on that because the type of person that becomes a startup founder today, on average, there are exceptions to this rule. But on average, I think they're kind of trying to figure out what is an easy path to build like a, like a SaaS thing that I can visualize in my head will get big in like three to five years. And you say, well, why are you doing that? And they say, well, because I saw these four other founders do that and now they're billionaires. How do you see this kind of like this kind of optimistic versus pessimistic, you know, the pessimistic, if you think of the fires or climate change, we'll say, um, you know, view will be um, let's reduce consumption or something. And then the optimist will say, um, let's invest in technology. Let's change the world so that we don't have this type of thing or whatever. Um, and there's a bit of a tension that happens. Um, and it does seem like the pessimists are more ascendant than the optimists or maybe you disagree with that in society. I think there's a general human condition, which is I think the brain is probably much better at imagining downside than upside, which makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint, like you don't die. Um, um, and I think in addition, in a world of kind of Twitter, where one is rewarded in a synthetic currency of love and admiration by producing content, it's actually much easier always to produce content that worries about the downside as opposed to the upside. Um, doing the upside requires real creativity. I think that's kind of why from a brain synapse standpoint, you tend to get more of that chatter. Um, um, but it is true. I find for every topic in the news, I always think of it as, you know, move forward or move back. And there's a lot of move back chatter, um, you know, versus just, you know, uh, you know, carry on, um, uh, keep buggering on was the Churchill quote. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that I, I like, you know, at the end of the day, um, the technologists, because the once they do produce something, 
even though they're a small minority, the optimistic people that look forward, once they do produce something, it does like really spread. If, if you think of like the pessimism of the 60s and 70s, it was overpopulation and we won't be able to feed everybody. And then the Green Revolution happened. And then we just it's like we just move on to a new pessimism. It's not like they all of a sudden become optimists or something. Right. They just find a new thing to be pessimistic about. And I think that's that's OK. Like, you know, I generally think. I view CNN.com as a menu of moral panics. You know, what do you want to panic about? Breaking news of bad things happening. <laughs> yeah, we have all sorts of things for you to panic about. And please click on all of them and we'll show you the ads first. You know, you know, some crazy outbrain article. And part of the reason it's so popular is people love panicking about stuff. right? Well, I, I think it's popular because yeah, it, totally the, the the there's a part of the human brain that thinks I should consume this information because some of it may be useful for me to protect myself. So like, I think it's very elemental, um, you know, why news is interesting is the, you know, the brain is seeking information, you know, that, okay, maybe there is a hurricane coming. So we'll build shelter. That is helpful. But the issue is that that is like the number of news items in total um, over the kind of the ones you have agency over, you know, it must be like one in one, a million things a year I read, I have agency over. And I do think that that is uh, an important thing. I, I don't know, I, I at least try to do. I generally speaking, I only read really two news sources, um, the Financial Times and Bloomberg, because they tend to report things, at least just if, facts, it, it's just facts. And generally speaking, you have agency over and they report them in a very agency way. You know, like I, I love that at the bottom of every Bloomberg article, it's like, you're the relevant stocks. Um, and so their, their, their view is at least like, at least trade on everything that we're, you know, um, and I think, I think that's, that's good. And, um, yeah, as a result, you see them reporting less about the latest political thing, unless of course you can trade on it. Um, um, and I have generally found the, this is a total tangent and I have no idea of really what I, I'm not a great study trader, but the, the grounding of, um, financial news, especially in this day and age, is, is really helpful because they're not really interested in pontificating. And, and I also think, by the way, actually, like if you have theories and opinions, getting conviction to the point where you're going to trade on them, I think is very helpful. It makes one re very truth seeking in a world where, because today, in order to underwrite an idea, all you have to do is tweet it. And people don't really seem to value their social currency that much. And so technically the, that's what you'd be devaluing, but they'd be happy to tweet it. Um, Whereas it's a whole different conversation. You know, if you tell someone, oh, you know, it's a popular topic. Um, I think uh, China will invade uh, Taiwan, you know, in the next month. I'd say, okay, so then you should put like, you know, a quarter of your net worth in TSMC puts. And then suddenly they're like, well, maybe it won't be next month. Even on the climate change discussion, it's like, well, there's probably a lot of ways to trade on that. And, you know, one way to trade on that probably would not be buying like Manhattan real estate or, or something. Um, but, uh, but it seems that people sometimes trade almost in the opposite way of their beliefs. I think that's right. And, you know, I think on climate change, um, that's a great example of people who want to go backwards versus forwards, meaning, you know, it's, it's, uh, is it, you know, drive less uh, or is it carbon capture? I think in reality, I actually visualize a spectrum of, you know, people who want to go backwards, people who want to go forwards. And then most people in the middle who in reality don't really care, but their revealed preference is always to continue doing what you want to do. And the go backwards people always want people to change behavior. Um, and, you know, I, 
I think like in reality, just people aren't going to really change their behavior. They're just going to follow, you know, whatever incentive they want to. Um, like, yeah, I see this now with, with COVID people are, you know, obsessive. There's a, there's a real semblance going on with that, you know, please vaccinate yourself. And, um, you know, I think there's in reality, the person has decided whether they're going to vaccinate themselves or not. And like, there's no article on CNN or message from the CDC that's going to change their opinion. And it's really fascinating that those sources don't realize this. Um, there's no celebrity infomercial that's going to cost someone to change their opinion on that. But, you know, I think the much easier path forward would be stop trying to get people to vaccinate themselves and just focus on therapies. Because once someone gets COVID, they very much want the therapy. Um, and so I think that's kind of an interesting model on how you could think about the go forward, go back with people, just meet people where they want to be met, you know, and don't try to convince them to change their behavior. But we've strayed now from the topic for which you invited me. And so all the information we're discussing is probably wrong. But. You know, so we've had a discussion before about how to ask good questions and stuff. And I, I know that you sometimes ask people questions about movies, especially kind of maybe controversial movies like Whiplash. Like what's what's kind of the reasoning? Is it a hack? What's kind of the reasoning around those types of questions? Well, this is kind of going back to the topic we briefly touched on earlier, which is I think there's a lot to be said for the aesthetics of the conversation. And a lot of interview questions that are very good are pretty obtuse. And, you know, Peter Thiel will come at you with the like, you know, what's one, you know, secret you believe that no one else in the world agrees with you on? It just, you end up selecting for odd answers in that situation where people are now thinking, what's a clever thing to say? So I find when you ask people, and this is in many ways something I, learned from just observing Tyler or Cohen, when you ask people easygoing questions, especially if you have a Midwestern accent, but I don't, um, you tend, I mean, they'll just give you honest answers and you can get actually the same alpha um, if you kind of decode the answers. So questions like, you know, how do you spend your day or what movies do you watch um, are, are honestly just better conversation because there's no sense that the other person is going to, you know, perform for you, which is not yeah, what you it's want. It's not like a judgment or something per se, right? Exactly. And and I think you can learn a lot about revealed preferences from people. What do you think you learn about, like, by asking people what movies they watch? Well, it's it's usually not just the film, which you can learn a little bit, of, uh, you know, from if someone watches a lot of adventure movies, I think they're probably an adventurous person. But more deeply, um, you, you can have a great conversation about the film and people reveal interesting things there. So, you know, I like Whiplash, uh, just... Uh, as an example, um, because it's there's conflict in that story. It's like not really clear um, if you're going to be pro and con. You tend to select for a very specific narratives. With for for context, Whiplash is a movie um, uh, about uh, a drummer uh, it, that gets pushed, uh, you know, a bit too hard um, by his um, music teacher or coach, and you tend to instantly filter out the insecure overachiever types who say, I thought it was an amazing film. Um, and they're, what they're kind of saying is, I wish someone would push me that hard. Oh, then there's a different answer, which is just a different type of person who says, well, you know, it's like a great movie about bad work-life balance and, you know, he shouldn't have pushed too hard and um, whatever. And I instantly like know what type of person now that is. And, you know, uh, I, you know, for me personally, I might be the wrong person. I am interested in, in those insecure overachievers and I'm not interested in a person who's worried about that, um, who's worried about a drummer burning out, you know, to each their own. I find, by the way, with many of these talent selection topics, it's not that we are trying to pick people that that like we all want the same people. 
is we're really trying to just pair up with people that are similar to us. And it's, it's almost like a dating problem. Where, it's it's right. totally a dating problem. And I presume the person who's super worried about like burnout and whatnot is going to do really well with other people that are worried about that and not well at all with me. You can have fun conversations about the films and, and it's just like a different um, it's just more, more relaxed. The other trick, by the way, is kind of obvious in hindsight, I think to do an interview that's kind of similar to asking about media and content to just say all the things we're discussing now about the kind of meta conversation out loud. And so I tend to start interviews literally by just talking about how most interviews are really boring, um, for both parties and how my hope is that we're just not going to have that. Um, and, and I think that relaxes things. Just gets people more in the mood and more willing to take a, uh, to actually have a real conversation and less performative or. Yeah, I think so. And I'll, I'll also say things like, look, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here that are kind of easy softballs to get just the conversation going. And then we'll go on a random walk. I don't know where we'll end up. I, I really hope it's interesting. Um, I might interrupt you if, if that's okay, just to keep things interesting for me, you should interrupt me. Um, if I ask you a question that I think you're not going to have the answer to, I'm going to vamp for a little bit before I let you answer it, just so you can think about it. So anyway, I want you to have like a fun 30 minutes um, and I have to do these all day. So I'd selfishly like to have a fun 30 minutes too. And yeah, that, that really changes the atmosphere. When I think of some of the interviews I've had where these, I've had these like incredible interviews where the person I thought was amazing and stuff like that. Long-term, a lot of those people, they turned out to be like very interesting academically type of people. Um, and a lot of them ended up like, you know, leaving the corporate world and doing something in academia. And they actually were very, very interesting people, but they might've not been, they, they weren't like the A, they were good, they were a solid player, but they weren't necessarily like the A player at the company. Um, and, and, uh, we were someone who like had a, you know, maybe a good interview, but not a great interview sometimes was more likely to be the a player. Um, have you had similar experiences or do you like, what advice would you give to me to like changing my interview st uh, structure? I've heard from people who interview experienced interviewers and people that have pedigree and they, there's a common narrative there that you hire that person and then you kind of let them go or put them in a different position and it doesn't work out. And the kind of random noob ends up doing really well at the company, um, which is related. And I do think that, at least in my head, you have to, I have to like readjust my defaults on what's good because what you're kind of told is good, I think is actually not good. Um, you know, you're told the super polished, great interviewer, whatever, the person has a great background. You know, a lot of times those people have seen their greatest days already. You know, they're in their past. Um, and, and you're generally like, you have to be really interested when, when, when someone raw who's like 23 years old comes in and they don't really have all the answers, not really put together, but they seem energetic. You have to realize that that person is worth 10 times the person that was at Google for 10 years and thinks they have all the answers. They, or they could be higher beta, right? They're definitely higher beta. Um, but at the end of the day, usually, uh, I don't know, I, I found those have worked out for me much more in hindsight. And it's just the, it's not the priors that you have. And so, you know, maybe there's a, a dichotomy here that we're talking about just between polished and raw. Um, and I do find, uh, I found with execs, actually, I, I actually feel very uncomfortable in interviews because they're extremely polished. Um, and so you kind of, I, I always, I'm, I've, sometimes I'll say this in an interview. 
I, I'll say, you know, I, I kind of feel to some extent like I'm in a boxing match here and you're like punching way faster than I can respond. Um, and um, that helps. Like talking about the inner conversational dynamics always, always helps in my opinion. It takes courage to do. It feels a little awkward to do at first, but it always helps. I, if I think of the the true 10Xers in my career that I've worked with, I, I don't think I really could have predicted them versus, you know, some of the other people I hired at the interview stage that they would become the 10Xers. Obviously, anyone you hire is someone you think is talented. Otherwise, you wouldn't you wouldn't hire them. Um, but, you're, you know, if you hire 100 people and five become the 10Xers or something, um, I don't know that I would have predicted those five. If I told you to reevaluate your algorithm, you're not trying to predict 10X, but you're trying to predict 3X. Would you have been able to do that? I don't think so. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I maybe I maybe maybe if I go back in time. Um, it got again. Everyone you're hiring, you 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 think good of. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't be hiring think, the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but if like you're hiring, let's say a software engineer, and you're you know you you already have a pretty high bar for your software engineers or your product person, your salesperson, whatever it might be. Some of them just turn out to be you know some of them turn out to be very good people in the company. And some of them turn out to be just transformative people in the company. I think it's very difficult. At least for me, it's been very difficult to know. That's in, I do agree that with software engineers in particular, there's the 10x folks have an interdisciplinary skill set. That's actually not really, there's no good curriculum for it, it because the curriculum or the interview panel is, as currently built for software engineers is, you know, see if the person can code, whereas the real 10x people have the ability to translate kind of like a product idea into a fully fleshed out thing, which involves communicating with other people, having a sense of aesthetic, which literally there's no interview questions for. How do you test for aesthetic in a software engineer? Um, I, like, I have ideas about this, but I think we're the only company that does them. Like, you know, I think like good writing is actually a very good proxy for visual aesthetic. Uh, and so the person that I, that I think is able to piece together, like the like they have no designer, but they can make something that looks pretty decent, can also probably write pretty decently too. Um, but you're right that like that, this is an unsolved problem. Well, if you think about these, these, these engineering, I mean, you, you, you definitely are very uh, kind of a pioneer in, in, in leaderboards and thinking about leaderboards and stuff. And a lot of sales organizations are run on leaderboards. If you have the SafeGraph where I work, we have a sales, you know, everyone knows what everyone else is doing. It's public for basically anyone in the company can know how everyone's doing. It's you know, pretty common, has like certain types of leaderboards, whether it's for your BDRs or your salespeople, et cetera. Whereas there's, to the best of my knowledge, very few companies have like an, a, sales, a leaderboard for engineers. Um, I don't even know exactly how you would do it. Have you thought through that? Yeah, so th this in, is one of the, of most interesting areas of um, research. There's obviously many startups trying to do this, which is how do you quantify engineering productivity? Uh, and I do think there's a view that is not totally wrong, that if you could just do this, you fix a lot of problems and say all Triple Byte should have done is just build this algorithm. Um, and so there's companies um, uh, that try and do, if you just like Google quantify engineering productivity, generally speaking, what it's done, what's done is just like looking at git commit cadence, which isn't great. Um, there's, there's two or three interesting papers that try to look at, try to understand code complexity over commit time. Um, so that's somewhat useful. Um, you know, I kind of am of the view, by the way, this is a, so this is a great example in like, I think KPI management where 
you have this issue and you're going to have to pick between a dirty metric that's easy to explain and a correct metric that's really hard to explain. And that, by the way, the team's not going to measure right for like six months and they're keep on correcting. The dirty metric is usually the right choice. And so it's not clear. I mean, like I do think if you broadly speaking, just measured just line change, um, you'd probably directionally get there. And when you might say, well, someone's going to add jQuery. And so they're like going to blow up our repo and say, whatever, just move on. For salespeople, I would say a successful salesperson is extremely highly correlated to how many hours a week they work. Um, and uh, the, 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 the harder working people just you know, end up having like double the amount of sales as the less hardworking people. Um, and it's almost like it's almost like that's the only metric sometimes in sales. Whereas for engineering, you know, at the plenty of times my best engineers work under 40 hours a week or something. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be as correlated. Like, how would you know who is the, you know, who, you know, how, how would you know? I, obviously, you might know after you work with someone for a while, but is there some way to predicting ahead of time? Yeah, the, the best engineer I've ever worked with across my life, maybe 11 years or so of, of working to date, uh, I would leave work every single day, like on the dot at 3.59 p.m. <laughs> religiously. And it didn't matter. You know, I was happy he just came in to work at all. Yeah, I mean, by the way, this person you would have caught if you would have just measured code, just lines. Just lines of code. Okay. Just extremely productive while they were working. Yeah. I'd like the, if I think of myself as an engineer, some fraction of my time is like debugging, thinking about what to write. But he would do, he would basically spend maybe 30 minutes in the morning thinking about what to do. And then the rest of it was just output. Um, and so I do think you know, just like the, the odds that the piece of code that you write is going to run correctly on first run is very predictive of, I think, intellect and intelligence. And there's a lot of people that are like, oh, it didn't work well. Let me just literally brute force. Um, and I've often thought that there are like, we need different names because the person who's doing that, who just has it in their head, they write it, it runs, is literally a different trade from the person who's can't figure out how to get the CSS to work and is going to change every single parameter based on their Googling that they do on Stack Overflow until it loads properly. That's, th these two people do not have the same profession. If I think about how I would have predicted that guy, I think it was pretty clear the moment he walked in the door, he was incredibly smart. Um, you, you, like, I feel like you, when you interact with these people, you, you kind of realize that it's an alien level of intelligence. Um, well, there are these engineers who where they're actually all over the code base. So there's these like super amazing engineers that are just in this very narrow part of the code base. Like there's this one like machine learning thing and, and those are really, really valuable for your company. But then there's these other engineers and they're like, they have commits everywhere. And you're like, how do they even know about this other thing going on? Like that's not even in their org, but somehow they're everywhere in the, in the, in the code base. And they're both pretty valuable. Like the, the one that's everywhere is kind of like the connector who, Kind of like brings things, you know. They're they've got like the 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 Erdish score or something where they're bringing all this stuff together. Yeah, you kind of have synthesizers, which are the you know broad scope people that you're talking about um, versus specialists who um, just do that one particular thing. I, I do think the true knockout engineers, at least that I've worked with, are almost both. Yeah, um, it's the guy who definitely like you hired him to do this one particular thing. But then it turns out they're just like rewriting random like libraries. 
Here's an interesting thing I found those people have that I think is a true across the board, maybe with salespeople, see if you agree, is what they consider easy work is actually what a lot of other people would consider a lot of hard work. Their baseline just like uh, uh, sense of what a task is, is just really different from other people. Like um, I remember once um, just asking a sales guy to just water plants, just water this one plant, you know, over in our office, someone on our team asked him to do that. And he went and we have a lot of plants because we'd like a kind of, you can tell there's some plants here too. Um, and he went and he watered all of them. And without just thinking about it, he just did. And it was like dozens and dozens of plants. And you always got the sense that like, for him, this was like, that's what you do. It's not a big deal. It's not a big chore. Like that's what the water plant task means. Whereas I could imagine a lot of other people that would have barely remembered to water just one. And I found this with software engineering too. Like, what do you mean you rewrote the whole library? Like, because it wasn't well-documented. Well, I just did. Well, there's a, there's a sense of these like 10 Xers where they, I would say the common trait of many 10 Xers is that they don't actually understand what's in their job description. Um, and they think like a way bigger piece is in their job description than is. And so they just kind of end up doing a whole bunch of other, it's like, oh, I'm in sales, but then I also kind of end up doing marketing. I do products, I do customer success. I, I sit with the engineers, uh, you know, and, and so they end up like doing a lot more than, than you would expect in their job description. I think that's right. And at least what I've experienced with those folks is there's, they don't even realize why they're doing all these other things. There's just a sense that that's right. Like we got, why are you rewriting the internal HR guidelines and fixing typos? I was just wrong. So I fixed it. Yeah. It almost feels like they're not in control of, of what they do. It's just like a conscientiousness overdose. Like I just had to do it. Um, so I did. Are there any other ways? I, I know you really studied leaderboards. Are there other ways you think like companies can use leaderboards in some sort of effective way? Well, I do think in general, the just staring at charts and numbers and leaderboards together as a team is helpful in, in, in a remote world where there's just like less bonding going on. Like, I think like broadly charts are a pretty good antidote. Staring at charts together is a pretty good, not antidote, but um, it's like, uh, I think these are called partial agonists. It's like 20% uh, of being in the real world together. Generally speaking, um, um, you need to kind of get to as close as you can as to what the free market charts and leaderboards do. And the stock market, there's, there's a couple of interesting things going on there that I think is, are worth reverse engineering for anyone building a leaderboard in their organization. First of all, the time that it is open where, where there's going to be action and risk uh, is fixed. And so everyone has a sense of fixed beginning and fixed end. Um, this doesn't apply to all categories, but, but uh, to, if you can have that, that's really big because if you have that, you have team synchronicity. People are going to be looking at that together. Got it. So it's like um, we have a monthly cadence or something. Is that what you're talking about? You have a monthly um, cadence or if you have a meeting and you only reveal the stats, you know, over the course of a couple of hours in that meeting, it's much more interesting. The, these leaderboards really work because they create conversation at the end of the day. Uh, and so that's what you want. I would say that like that would be number one. Number two, liveliness is really important. Like if you look at the, uh, if you get an interactive broker's account and you stare just at the tick by tick as it comes in, it's, it's, you're transfixed. There's information and risk coming in every single second. And what's interesting is you go through this loop where the brain starts to, it's always in wrong, but the brain starts to like develop pattern recognition systems. And so, you know, it's thinking, wow, you know, it's on an uptick. 
Wait, no, it's on a downtick. Wait, it always goes on an uptick at 932. That's really interesting. Why is that happening? And in the stock market, all these theories are wrong. And that's why quant funds make a lot of money. Um, but um, if, you, if you're staring at, say, your live users on site or something, the team starts to have, especially if it's synchronous, conversations about it. So liveliness is really important. Ideally, you want to get things coming in like on a millisecond basis. Um, even if the data is dirtier, more action. Um, and then the third thing I would say that the kind of stock, those are a lot, but maybe three, uh, the third thing I would say that the kind of free market gets right is in the metrics and numbers, there's real risk. There's real risk. Like it's not that actually interesting to stare at a stock if you don't own it. If you own it, you want to stare at it. You want to stare at it too much. And so to the extent you can have metrics that, you know, actually matter and have risk, I think that's really important. And fundamentally, like going back to my earlier point, I think there is in remote work a shortage of emotion. There's a shortage of oxytocin. There's a shortage of dopamine. There's a shortage of emotion. And you need to overcome that emotion with, you know, in other ways. So leaders that make jokes is one way. Adding risk into like a, a leaderboard or a chart is another way. Um, you know, otherwise, just work isn't going to be that engaging. And, it, and I think there's going to be a real productivity tax for some people who are extrinsically motivated. Um, you know, in remote, generally speaking, not the first person to have this observation is a tax if you're extrinsically motivated uh, and a huge benefit if you're intrinsically motivated. But a lot of people are extrinsically motivated. And so they need these kind of this emotional soup to work. You mentioned a lot about humor, like humor inherently can be unsafe um, and, you know, is today's environment, how does one be humorous while still, uh, you know, ensuring there's some level or high level of protection and inclusivity and it's, you know, et cetera. Well, I think it's tough to be humorous. The larger the audience and the more you care about the audience, it's kind of harder to be humorous because we live in a world where there's an abundance of, uh, reputational short sellers who are looking to find one thing you said and they can short your reputation and they can benefit, but you lose. Um, and I think you just don't wanna have these people in your company. <laughs> um, uh, like, like, I think the reason humor is a good thing to strive for is it's proof that you actually do feel safe. I would fire these people. Um, and uh, I, like, I do think organizations today are suffering because um, the reputational short sellers have like their Robinhood, their platform that they short sell on is Slack. Yeah. Yeah. Or Twitter or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Slack's the enterprise version of that, where you get these Slack Moji riots going on. And that person who's starting the Slack Moji riot, you realize at some point as a leader, they're actually employed by a different company. They don't really work here, work for themselves. Yeah, basically. Yeah. They don't, they might not even fully understand who they work for. So I do think it's important to make sure those people don't exist in the business. And, um, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of the modern day corporate raiders are reputational raiders. I don't think they belong within companies. A couple of last questions. Um, you know, one is, uh, I know you grew up, you mentioned you grew up in Jerusalem as a, you know, more Orthodox Jew. Um, you know, how, how's your faith evolved over time and, and how's that like influenced your, your kind of your founder path? It's an evolving topic. And on the odd chance, my, uh, high school rabbi decides to listen to this podcast. I, I'll be careful with my words, but, um, Look, I think how valuable it is to be brought into the network of Silicon Valley, which was the gift I was given, um, that, that I think is really important to pay forward, not just selfishly because you can make good investments. If you want to have like better things in the world, I think generally speaking, they come from outsiders. And so, you know, I think the interesting thing for my 
stance is, you know, if, if someone who grew up Orthodox, you know, near the old city in Jerusalem, you know, can build a search engine that gets acquired by Apple, um, I think it goes to show this. Probably, by, by the way, amongst those 60,000 or so refugees in Afghanistan, like I bet if you could sort them by like whatever the right thing to sort is, um, you put some great founders and great companies to work. Um, you know, I, I really think like at the end of the day, the the natural starting conditions for what it takes to start a company uh, are actually pretty even. The natural starting conditions for what it takes to become a chess champion, a tennis champion, a ma uh, leading mathematician, a Nobel laureate are not. Like I do think there are genetic gifts in that world. But in order to start a successful business, I actually think the skill sets, depending on the market that you go into, are pretty universal. So anyway, that's my that's kind of my reflection. You know, on uh, when you know when I think about the, the the religious world I grew up in. All right, and last last question we ask all of our guests. You know, if you if you can go back in time. Uh, what advice could you would you give to your younger self? Maybe two things are on my mind. I I just turned thirty, and so it's it's actually been on my mind a lot. One is I think I should have just. I am moving at five percent of my potential speed. I think, and so I think just and most like, people are you know between one and five. You think? <laughs> I don't know. It's a it's a, but all I know is like I am nowhere near. And so my first piece of advice would have been to just everything should have been done faster. Um, like if I had a board of me, I think they would say just, you should have done everything faster. Um, the second thing that's more practical is I do think I really benefited at Apple from learning from the people who I worked with. And I think, especially in your twenties, when you're so impressionable, um, it, it's actually really helpful to be surrounded, to be an apprentice somehow to someone. And I spent, we sold, when we sold, I was 23 and I lacked that form of apprenticeship, really. And you learn a lot from experience. It's a different kind of learning, you know. You, you're, I mean, I, I constantly need to apologize to my early team because, you know, it's 18-year-old getting into management from Israel is like not actually who you want to work for, I think. But anyway, finding someone to apprentice under, I think, is really important. Um, and I wish I would have done that sooner. If you think of it in compounding math, every year I didn't do that. I lost quite a bit, actually. Yeah, so your, your growth rate was... X and it, your growth rate could have been X plus 10% or, you know, et cetera, or, you know, that type of thing you think? A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I think um, like I, 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 at least for me, I think other people are probably better than me in general. I'm like living in 5% of the total potential. And so the question on my mind is how to get to a hundred percent or even 105% would be great. Um, uh and I think there's a lot of factors that go into that, but like the big one is, you know, probably environment and, you know, who you're surrounded by. Daniel, this has been really fun. Where, where, where if people want to find more about you or Pioneer on the interwebs, where do they do that? Well, Pioneer's website is uh, pioneer.app. Uh, we don't own the .com because we've yet to outstrip uh, the Japanese audio conglomerate for um, uh, market cap. Um so that's that. Um, I, you know, I I'm sure people can find me on Twitter. I I don't tweet that much, but um, do you like your tweets though? I follow you on Twitter. So. Thanks. Um, and so I'm followable there. And honestly, people should just email me. Most of my day, like literally most of my day, and so most of my brain power. And I don't know if this is good or bad. It but goes into a different social network uh, called Gmail. So you just email me. Awesome, Daniel. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Great questions. And thanks for setting this up. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.